may be seated. Lord, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, our strength and Redeemer. Amen. Good morning. It's uh, summer in Athens, obviously, which it's really hot outside. And if, if you're like me, it being summer in Athens, I mean, really hot outside means I spent a lot of time trying to not be outside. I spent a lot of time bouncing from building to building that has air conditioning. And this gets complicated if you have kids because kids like to break things that are inside. And so you have to find places that have air conditioning and are also child friendly. And so if you're, if you're looking for places like that, we've found a few. We go up to the Children's Museum or we go over to the Sandy Creek Nature Center. It, it also means we spend a lot of time in the library. Uh, and our, our library here in Athens has a really good children's program. It's, it's well-decorated. It's, it's got these huge stuffed lions up on the stacks, and you come in, and they've got a sort of reading program for the summer. And they have these books set out that before you get to sort of the stacks where all the books are, are put away, they have these books set out that they're sort of recommending to you. And I wanted to tell you about one we found the other day. Peter and I, my uh, little three-year-old and I, were in the library, and there was a book called Beaver and Otter, A Story of Grit and Friendship. And I thought, that, that sounds like a winner. It had good illustrations, and I thought, this could be fun. So we brought it home. Uh, it was one of these kind of, it was sort of a science book, but it had a narrative arc to it, you know, those kind of things. And it, it begins with the story of a beaver cutting down a tree, and then it kind of walks through the creation of a habitat, right? He, he creates this pond, all these animals come to live in it. Um, but then, no sooner has he created his sort of dam and his home than a family of otters move into the neighborhood. And, and here's the thing you need to know. If you're a beaver, otters are a nuisance, all right? They're loud and boisterous. They eat the fish that you've invited to come live in your pond. And then, worst of all, in the middle of the winter, they'll tear up your dam, which means that you have to get out in the cold night and repair it with no thank you and no help from the otters. It's a problem. But, and here was the moral of the story, if you're a beaver, you just grin and bear it. You repair the dam. You observe the poaching of the fish. Maybe if those otters get a little too close to your den, you might hiss at them. But otherwise, you just sort of go along to get along. And eventually, things settle down. The, the very end of the book, it says something like, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver built more dams and more dens, and the lake grew bigger. And eventually, the otters moved to the other side of the lake, and the beavers were able to live in peace. Beaver and otter would never be friends, but at least they could get along. And that, and that can feel right, right? That that can feel like a pretty good resolution. They, they can't get along, but you can't be friends with everybody. Sure, Otter has some destructive tendencies, but as long as he's not bothering Beaver, maybe we don't need to make a big deal out of it. I mean, the fish might feel otherwise, but that's really just too bad, right? Why um, confronting Otter would just be so messy, right? Why would Beaver want to do that? Why would anyone want to do that? Why rub someone's fur the wrong way? Why risk a conflict when you could just sort of tolerate it uh, from the other side of the lake? There's something pretty appealing there about that reasoning, something that jives with the way that sort of culturally we think about conflict, which is that I don't want it. But compare that to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Brothers, if 
Anyone is caught in any transgression. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, why would I want to do that? It's so messy. It so often doesn't turn out right. Why would anyone want to do that? Y'all, the success rate for that kind of thing has to be on the floor, right? For every instance of, oh, thank you. This has been a problem. I really need some help. There have to be a dozen instances of, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm doing X, but you're doing a lot of Y and Z. Who are you to tell me about what I'm doing wrong? What is Paul thinking? What is, what is God doing with this passage? Why does Paul see it as being an important instruction to include at the, law, at the end of this long letter? What's going on here? I think to get there, we're going to need to talk about three things today. First, we're going to need to talk about sin, about what Paul is telling us about sin. And then we're going to need to talk about the Spirit and what the Spirit is doing. And then finally, once we've done that, I think we can begin to see what Paul is doing, what the Spirit is calling us to, how a radical love for one another that's willing to engage and remain through discomfort is essential to the character of the people of God. So, first, what is Paul saying about sin? I'd like to back up a little bit to chapter 5, uh, particularly his argument that begins in verse 16. If, if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. I'll, I'll sort of give you the key bits. But what I want to highlight is that this verse is actually the conclusion of a longer argument that he's been engaged in. So chapter 5, verse 16, Paul has a lot to say here about sin and about the effects of sin. And he uses this technical term Deacon Joe was uh, helping us see last week, this technical term flesh. It, it doesn't mean when he says flesh, he's not talking about your body. He's talking about the parts of you, the parts of all of us that are, are in rebellion to God, the parts of humanity that have not yet been brought under the light of Christ. And he's saying, let's see here, Paul's giving a list of what that life produces. He's talking about the works of the flesh, the outcome of pursuing that kind of life. And, no, and he gives a list in chapter 5, and it's the kind of list that no one looks at and thinks, hmm, that sounds like the good life. Right? It, it's a list that starts bad, and it gets, work. it gets worse. So think about the things on that list. He says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And those, you know, we sort of look at those, and those seem bad. But then look at what follows. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Think about a community that could be described that way. If you were in a community that, that was characterized by enmity, strife, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, this isn't where you want to live. And then finally, drunkenness and orgies and all those kinds of things. Paul is writing explicitly about the kinds of community which the flesh creates. Divisive, envious, given to anger and hatred, Sure, as long as everyone is drunk, as long as everyone's pretending to have a good time, then, you know, you can, it can be, you can feel like you're okay. But have you ever seen a group like this? What happens when someone falls to the outside? What happens when someone stops being cool with it all or, or isn't able to sort of play the game anymore? I was talking with a friend the other day about her, her experience, her first time at a UGA football game. This was a while back. She said, you know, I was there. It seemed like it was a lot of fun. People were sort of milling about and, and having a good time. But I saw this group of friends, and one of them, there was a girl there that she had clearly had too much, and she started to get sick. And all of a sudden, all of her friends just like, poof, they were gone. And someone else had to come and help this, girl, this poor girl get to safety. 
they abandoned her, right? They, they, they left her on her own as soon as it stopped being fun. In the context Paul is describing, there's only the thin veneer of community. And at the bottom of that bottle, at the end of those nights, particularly where that becomes a lifestyle, all that's left is depression, despair, and a profound loneliness. And that's what Paul is trying to tell us about sin. That sin, the flesh, like our Lord says of the enemy, comes to steal and kill and destroy. It's not the kind of thing you ignore. It's not the kind of thing that can be placated. It's not the kind of thing that you can just go along to get along with. Not if you love someone. And just to be clear, the testimony of Scripture is, not, is that it's not the kind of thing that you can solve on your own either. It's not, it's not a question of willpower. It's not a question of sort of gritting your teeth and getting through it. No, it's the kind of thing we all need saved from. And so that brings us to our next question, what is God doing? Specifically, if we know that it's not up to us to save ourselves, much less one another, why does Paul give us this command about restoring one another? Go and find the brother who has fallen into a trespass and restore him. Why that command? To answer that, we need to follow the argument from chapter 5 just a little further. He's described what life in the flesh is like. Now he's going to talk about what life in the spirit is like, what the fruit of the spirit is like. Paul's contrasting the two. He's holding them up side by side and saying, this is what's created by the life of the flesh. This is what's created by the life of the spirit. The flesh devours and destroys, and inevitably it leaves you alone. The Spirit gives life. It creates, and specifically, this is, this is important, it creates right relationships. Think about it this way. This is, this is what the Spirit does all the time, right? Christ died on the cross. He was, he was resurrected. He, became the, he was the Messiah, right? But how are we linked to Christ? Through the Spirit, he gives us his spirit that lives inside of us. That's the connection point between what Christ has done and where we're at, right? The spirit creates relationship. And just as he creates relationship between us and Christ, he also binds together the people of God. It and the spirit produces within us, right? We're back to the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5. The spirit produces within us the characteristics of a community, Sometime later, I'd invite you to go back to uh, Galatians 5 and look at that list of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Look at those and ask yourself, what's the unifying principle here? Why, why this particular set of virtues? What's Paul doing? I like the way Bishop N.T. Wright puts it, what's distinct about the fruit of the Spirit in, in comparison to other possible lists of virtues is that the fruit of the Spirit is inherently relational. He writes, Christian virtue is a team sport. You can't do love, peace, patience, gentleness, and so on all by yourself. Even self-control, he says, isn't about yourself, not just about yourself. The Spirit produces this fruit within you in the context of your relationship with others. So if we want to sum up Paul's argument up to this point, here's what we could say. Christ, who has set his church, his church, including you, free from the flesh, has given us his spirit to produce in you the ability to love and serve one another, to show for each other the very love that God has shown to you, that while we were still sinners, still far away from God, God came and rescued us. Christ died for you. 
And I think it's at that point, at that sort of recognition, that we can move to our third question. What does this command from Paul have to do with the Gospels? Why on earth would I want that kind of relationship? Why would I want to go find my brother or sister when they've fallen into a transgression and pull them out of it? Why can't, thinking about the story at the beginning, why can't I just let the otter do his thing, right? And as long as he doesn't interfere with me, why can't I just ignore it? I think the key problem, the key to the problem has to do with the word caught in Paul's sentence. There's a reason Paul uses the word caught. And, and let's just be clear for a second. When he says caught, he doesn't say, he doesn't mean if any of you has been found out, right? He's not talking about some sort of surveillance or busybody Christianity. He's, he's not talking about catching people with their hand in the cookie jar. Okay, that's not, that's not what's going on. When he says caught, he means trapped. That's another way to translate that word. Or ensnared, entangled. When someone's no longer walking with you, Think about the story of the, of the girls at the football game, right? The, one of them got caught up short, right? She wasn't able to keep going with them. And Paul is saying, when that happens, when someone who was walking beside you isn't beside you anymore, go and find them. Go and get that person and restore them. Bring them back into the fellowship of the faith. There's a children's story, another one that I, I think is a good illustration here. It's, it's The Tale of Peter Rabbit by Beatrix Potter. Uh, you might remember the story, but if you don't, that's okay. I'm going to tell you about it. Peter is this, he's this sort of furry little guy. He's kind of mischievous. Uh, he's got his new jacket with brass buttons that he's real proud of. And his mother leaves him alone one day, and she says, you can go wherever you like, but don't go into Mr. McGregor's farm. Right? Mr. McGregor is a, is a farmer, um, and, and he's a human, right? And so she's warning her little rabbit child, don't go over there. Well, predictably, Peter finds his way into Mr. McGregor's garden. He goes where he's not supposed to go, and he, he finds there all sorts of delicious things to satisfy his appetite, right? Radishes, cabbages, turnips, carrots, and he's enjoying them. You might even say that he's living the life of the flesh. And, and right now, he finds it to be an enjoyable thing. But then, like so often happens, there comes a moment where he has to pay the piper. Mr. McGregor comes around the corner, and all of a sudden, he sees Peter, and Peter knows the game is up, and he starts to run. And so he runs, and he, he gets entangled in the cabbages, and he loses his shoes, and now he's running on all fours, and he sees the end of the garden, and he thinks he's going to make it. And right at that moment, he gets snagged. He gets trapped. He gets caught by a net around the gooseberry bush. And he can't get away. His fancy coat and brass buttons have strung him up, and now the hangman is coming with a sieve and an eye towards dinner. And then it says, I'll, I'll just read you what it says at the end of the story. Peter gave himself up for lost and shed big tears. But his sobs were overheard by some friendly sparrows who flew to him with great excitement and implored him to exert himself. And Peter wriggled out just in time, leaving his jacket behind him. There's a picture here of what's going on. There's a picture here of the church, too, that I think is beautiful. The sparrows, you'll notice, don't save Peter Rabbit. They don't disentangle him. They remind him that he's not nearly so trapped as he thinks he is. That if he will let go of certain things, he's actually free already. He's a rabbit, after all. What, what need does he have of a fancy coat and brass buttons? 
Think of what Paul says earlier in Galatians. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh already. He doesn't say are crucifying. He doesn't say will crucify. He doesn't say, hey, if you get there, eventually you'll be free. He says, have crucified. If you belong to Jesus, you're free. So set aside everything that trips you up and run with perseverance the, the race marked out for you. The flesh is dealt with already. There's no need to crucify it again. What's needed is to move away from the net. Now, listen, I, I don't want to infantilize something that's in actuality very hard. Okay? Being invested in people at this level, being a community like this, it's dirty and it can be painful. It's really often thankless. There's great danger here too, right? That Paul follows up in the next sentence of his verse. But that's why Paul gives this command at this point in the letter. That's the reason. He doesn't start off here. He gets here at the end, at the end of a long discussion about the work of the Spirit and what it's doing in the people of God. Notice how even this sentence in verse 1 is saturated with language about the Spirit. He says, brothers, that, that's you know, members of the family of God. In other words, those who are already indwelt with the Spirit. If any one of you is caught, is trapped, is entangled in any trespass, you who are spiritual, you who are in the Spirit, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, where, where does the gentleness come from? Think about why, why that phrase. Oh, because it's in the list that he's just mentioned, right? The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. You could also call it meekness or a self-restraint for the sake of the other person. Paul is saying, take care when you go to do this. Your goal is restoration. The flesh delights in division and in hierarchy and in things that, you know, comparisons that help you feel good about yourself. Look what they're doing. I'm not doing that. Maybe I'm going to go remind them that they're doing that thing over there and not me. That's the work of the flesh. The spirit is not like that. Paul says, you who are in the spirit aren't in competition with one another. You are bound to one another. Does that, make, that distinction make sense? You're not in competition with one another. You're bound to one another. If your brother falls into sin, treat it as if you yourself have fallen into sin. Take on the burden. Restore him as quickly as possible because the same God who restored you is restoring them through you. Now, in conclusion, I'm, I'm reminded of the story of St. Francis of Assisi and his calling. You might have heard this story before. Francis was a young man. He was wealthy. He had great prospects. And, and like many young people of great expectations, he found himself unsure of how to go forward. He found himself w trying to find a sense of direction in the world. And, and so he travels to this broken down chapel outside of Assisi. This is, this is around the year 1300. He travels to this broken down chapel outside of Assisi and he begins to pray, God, show me what I'm supposed to do. Show me how to live a life that's honoring to you, that fulfills my purpose. And, he, and the miraculous thing about St. Francis is that he hears a voice, right? A voice comes down from heaven and says, Francis, rebuild my church. Now, Francis, maybe not gifted with a whole lot of metaphorical intelligence, um, begins stacking bricks back on the church. He, he thinks that the command is, oh, this chapel's broken down. I'm going to start rebuilding it. And so the voice comes again and says, Francis, rebuild my church. So he says, okay, great. You know, so he starts doing it again, right? And over, this happens several times. And eventually, though, 
It sort of sinks in, and Francis realizes God's not talking about the building. Francis, restore my church. The, the church, as, as has happened time and again through history, the church had gotten snagged, gotten caught up in the things of the world. It had gotten disoriented about what God was calling it to do. And God was sending Francis to restore the people that he loved. And that's the same message that Paul is giving us in this letter. Love one another. Care for one another. When you see your brother or sisters no longer walking beside you, when they've become ensnared by evil, sin, or death, don't leave. Go and find them and restore them to the life of Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.